everyone, and welcome to this episode of MedTech POV, the podcast brought to you by Advomed, the world's largest trade association for medical technology companies. I'm your host, Scott Whitaker, president and CEO of Advomed. And today, we're pleased to have with us Juliana Elstead, the CEO of Vibrato, an innovative medtech company in the vascular space. She's also a board member of Advomed Excel, which focuses on the needs of small, innovative medtech companies like Vibrato, and we appreciate her strong leadership there as well. We'll get into her impressive background in medtech and hear her advice for those who aspire to lead a company someday. We also talk about some policy areas that are uniquely important to small companies and the patients they serve, from the SBIR program to TSIT, the transitional coverage of emerging technology policy that we're working on with the administration right now. We also discuss the war in Ukraine. Given Juliana's background growing up in Russia, she had some unique insights into this conflict as well. With that, Juliana, welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Giuliani. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. You know, I always like to start these interviews uh, learning a little bit more about the person behind the big title of CEO. So let's start there with you today, Giuliana. Tell us about uh, where you were born and raised and a little bit about your family and your upbringing. Sure. So I was born in a country that doesn't exist anymore, which is the Soviet Union. Uh, and I spent the first 25 years of my life there before I moved to the U.S. As a young adult, I went through a lot of changes as the whole country went through a lot of changes when the Soviet Union collapsed. And so I lived in Moscow when there was military coup and there were tanks in the street. I went through periods of food rationing. I lived through years of high inflation. It completely wiped the savings of the population. And as I went through this change from regulated economy to more free market economy, it really made me think about pros and cons of regulation and when it's enough and when it's not enough. Tell us where you were, where you went to school. You Were you educated uh, in the Soviet Union slash Russia or were you educated in the U.S.? Actually, both. So after high school, I went to college in Moscow, Russia. I was very fortunate to get into a diplomatic college, and I started international economics. And then I did my MBA at uh, the Wharton Business School, University of Pennsylvania, when I moved to the U.S. Yeah, well, what a fascinating educational journey for you then, to have your undergrad in one country and the and your graduate work in another country prepared you well for a CEO job, I'm sure. I'm not sure what can really prepare you well for a CEO job, but I think the breadth of experience helps. Let's step back a minute if we can, Juliana. Given your upbringing and your experience growing up in the Soviet Union, it's hard not to talk about the current conflict that we're seeing, the invasion of Russia into Ukraine, the humanitarian crisis that's been created as a result of that. If you can reflect a little bit on your thoughts on the current crisis in Ukraine from your perspective now, having grown up there, but now running a company in the United States. I think Ukrainian situation is a humanitarian catastrophe. It's really sad. It does pose questions for the next years to answer why world institutions 
failed to stop the invasion and protect democracy in the heart of Europe. And as an American CEO of Russian origin with close relatives living still in Russia and in Ukraine, I can tell you the first few weeks of this conflict were particularly hard for me personally. But I realized that as a MedTech leader, my energy, my resources are better spent making sure that we make U.S. economy stronger. And I think one of the best way to do it is to make sure that the population is healthier. And that's yeah. what all of us in MedTech are trying to do. I know, Juliana, you can't be a political prognosticator. But it's in just the past, you know, several weeks, it feels like we've gone through some ups and some downs. It feels like the crisis is escalating. And then at times it feels like it's going to subside a little bit. But as you look, look at it overall, even through those ups and downs, the, the invasion just continues to escalate in a way that's really troublesome. Do you see a way out of this in the short term? Or does it feel like really a long-term conflict that we're going to still be engaged in for a while? I think it's going to be long-term conflict in any scenario, whether even if it stops and whether Russia wins or Ukraine wins, it's not going to sit there and parties accept whatever happens. So it will continue to be another conflict and another conflict. I think it's unfortunately, but... It's going to be with us for quite some time. Let's transition to how you got into medtech. What took you into the medtech field? What was your professional journey to where you are today? I didn't start in medtech, but to some extent, I think my whole life was kind of living me to medtech. I talked at the beginning how like, I went through a lot of different changes as a young adult, but what really affected me more than any of this was the health of my sister, who was mm. born with a chronic mental disease. And it helped me realize that if you don't have health, nothing matters. And so as young as I could remember myself, I always wanted to have a sibling. And I asked my parents, and I'm sure that's not the reason why they decided to have a second child. But when I was almost seven, my sister was born and it forever changed the life of my family and taught me to look at everything through patients' eyes and in everything that we do at my company and at MedTech industry overall, patient is always first. That's a common theme that I've gotten with every CEO that I've interviewed from the largest CEOs to the smallest CEOs, right? The technology was always fascinating to them. They had a love for business. But everyone said the same thing, the impact that they felt like they could have on people's lives. Oftentimes it was a family member like you, right? That kind of got them started. In other cases it wasn't, but as an industry, we just really impact people's lives in a way that so many other industries don't do. And it, it makes it exciting. Absolutely. And also I think MedTech is self-selecting industry because I think the level of support the level of being driven by a mission among MedTech employees is very high. Tell us about your current company, Juliana. Uh, Vibrato, what devices are you focused on? What work are you doing with that company now? So Vibrato is an early stage MedTech company on a mission to disrupt treatment paradigm for peripheral arterial disease. 
And we want to become the preferred therapeutic system for patients with reduced tissue perfusion. So our novel non-invasive wearable device is designed to provide at-home therapy for critical limb ischemia, which is advanced stage of peripheral arterial disease. And this is the disease that can cause extreme pain, non-healing ulcers and wounds, and if not treated, ultimately leads to amputation. That is a, one of those diseases that's so hard, I can imagine, from a patient standpoint to deal with. All of them are, but that sounds very challenging. Are there other companies that are working in this space that you've collaborated with, or is this really a rare area where you needed to jump into and address it where there was an unmet medical need? There are other solutions that are more invasive. Specifically, we focus on below the knee treatment where arteries are really small and many of the current treatments don't work very well. And so it is a very high unmet clinical need. And when I say high unmet clinical need, I really, you know, like think about my family situation where we were looking for solutions for my sister everywhere. And when you cannot find it, it's really, really sad you feel helpless. And that's why this high unmet clinical need really resonates beyond just the standard language with me. And it's um, critical ischemia is a large population. It affects African-American people more than others. There is a lot of emphasis on the patient as we develop our technology. As you've gone through the process, you have regulatory challenges trying to get through the FDA process, right? And talk a little bit about how that experience has been. And then let's talk about the next challenge, which once you get through the FDA is is the payment side of it as well. So, but starting on the regulatory uh, area, from your perspective, small company CEO, how challenging has that been? Look, this is not my first company, I need to say. And, um, but we are lucky because I think as non-invasive therapy and device, We are considered as non-significant risk. So we are currently in the clinical trials, but because, again, the risk is low compared to some other more invasive devices that have been involved in the past, our regulatory path looks very reasonable right now. With a reasonable regulatory path and and a likely outcome there, then I would think for you, Juliana, the payment process is where you're going to face the biggest challenge and the biggest hurdle. One of the things we've been focused on here at Advimat, as you know, is trying to help companies have a more predictable pathway to reimbursement, right? Whether it is through MSIT, which we talked about before, or the new version of this, which is now being called TSIT. Talk about that and why that's so important to a small company as you're trying to grow and get a product to market into patients. So you could think why we, as early company that doesn't have FDA approval yet, why are we even talking about TSAT? I can say that, yes, the investors identified reimbursement as the main risk. And Mm. think about it. It's not technology, whether we can develop it. It's not whether it works clinically. It's not if we get FDA approval. It's about reimbursement. We are talking in our case about non-invasive at-home therapy for critical limb ischemia patients that studies show that CMS spends 50,000 per year per patient on average. And at-home healthcare therapy where you don't use the hospital or clinic 
it's really going to save CMS money in the future. Mm -hmm. And even that, we talk about investors who worry about the current and future processes for coverage for specifically home-based medical device technology. We've talked about this before. One of the challenges with reimbursement, and you think about federal payers, you mentioned CMS, if you have an underlying disease and condition and there's a new technology that is available, you might be able to get access to it at least initially if you have the means to do it, right? But if it's a large population in need of this in a large government program, especially if it's an underserved community or an underserved area of unmet need, it's those patients who suffer the most by not having a reimbursement pathway, right? Absolutely. You're totally right, Scott. It's really important for in CMS to have a more predictable process. We talked right. about, we mentioned it at the beginning, because even early on, people look at this and say like, well, investors, private individuals who are interested in investing, they look and say, well, how do we know that we will ever be reimbursed? We will ever right. be paid for this innovation. And we are not asking to guarantee, but to have a process that is fast and efficient. And I think if you make it predictable, those things come, being more efficient, being faster throughput. Yeah, it's really, I think, if we can shift the mentality a little bit from talking about healthcare cost, about disease burden, it's a slight change in mentality, but it's important. There is a cost of not covering new technologies. It's really, as COVID highlighted and emphasized, if we don't make investment in healthcare to make population healthier, we do have direct link to economy and GDP growth. And that's why I think programs like TSET or some kind of process that assures that new technologies are covered is so critical, not just for the medtech industry, but right. for the overall country and the economy, because if we want to be prosperous nations with GDP growing fast, we need to be a healthy nation. That's why new technologies that improve health are critical. That's right. I've often said in Washington that, that policy needs to be patient-centric, not budget-centric, right? And if you start just by thinking about the cost and the budget impact about something that you might naturally see in the federal budget, it skews it in one direction. But if you think about how do we focus on helping patients, then you have a completely different perspective. And oftentimes the outcome results in savings, not more expense if you do it right. Through my personal experience, I can tell you, so when my sister was born and had a chronic disease, at that time, my mom was a promising young engineer at the Soviet space program. We had to abandon her career right. to take care of my sister. And if you think about, it forever reminds me of the sacrifice that informal caregivers provide every day, and there are millions of that. And so when we talk about the disease burden, the cost of the disease, it's not just the cost of the treatment. It's not just how many work days a patient missed. It's more than that because it's also it's the cost of those innovations that that patient or the caregiver might have made that didn't happen. 
It's the cost of that GDP growth that did not occur that could have occurred. That is a great point. And what an amazing thing for your mom to do, to have to give up a career like that and take care of her daughter. It's a choice you don't want to have to make, but if you're mother, it's the only choice, right? Having experience of living with someone who has chronic disease really taught me a lot of things about how to think about patients. Let's transition to another policy issue that we deal with here in Washington that I think oftentimes policymakers don't understand the value of, right? And that's the SBIR, the small business program that provides grants to small companies to get up and running. Talk about why that's so important. We're at a point right now where there's a little uncertainty about whether that's going to be reauthorized, but can you reflect on your experience with that and then collectively why it means so much to device companies? So let me tell you the story of Vibrato, the current company I'm running. So Vibrato did start with initial small phase one NIH grant. Despite, so the technology that we use is therapeutic ultrasound and our co-founder and the brilliant cardiologist and scientist, Dr. Babak Neyser, came up with this idea how to save legs from amputation. And the science and initial data were really promising, but it was still an idea. And if it were not for that phase one small NIH grant, it I don't think we would have be today where we are. And then with that grant, we demonstrated good results and good work, and we got a bigger grant, uh, phase two. And then after that, we got private investments that are several times the grant money that we received in early days. And so I think this is a great example of collaboration between private and public sector that is very important because innovation, especially disruptive innovation with lots of risks, can only go so far if funded only by private sector. I think it's easy for people to say, oh, you know, private investors will fund it. Right. But healthcare is the second most regulated industry after nuclear energy. And uh, with all the risk, private investors sit and think, well, if we don't see government interest or support in this, why should we take all those risks? Right. And so, I think it's really, really important program. It might not sound like much, but it is a lot of innovation that right. supports. Right. And if you think about the future of medical technology, it gets more and more sophisticated, which means it takes more time and more money to bring it to the market. And as a society, I think we have three choices. One is increase the payoff at the end for private investors so that they take all this risk and justify, which means more expensive medtech and more healthcare cost as a society, which right. we probably don't want. Option right. two is do nothing, and that will reduce innovation. It will let other countries lead and limit US innovation to just only incremental improvements in technology. Or we can help small businesses early on with highly competitive process, very selective grant process. And so I think even those choices, I obviously am biased, but yeah. I think that SBIR is a great choice. And I can tell you, it's not my first company that uses the grants. My previous company I worked for, actually several of them, um, 
were fortunate to get some grants as well. And it really helps with credibility with investors. Those who are policymakers up here at Washington that that may not have gone through the process of trying to start a company and raise the money might not appreciate, you know, the value of having that upfront investment. I've heard from others, uh, Juliana, maybe this is your experience as well. If it weren't for the SBI program and if it weren't for those grants, there are a lot of companies who say, you know, we never would have gotten started, right? Because we just couldn't find the private investment. And it was the thing that spurred the innovation more than anything else. It sounds like that's been your experience too. Yeah, absolutely. As I mentioned, Vibrata did start with this small grant and it wasn't that the technology was bad or something and it could have right. It was pretty good and it has, look, the two co-founders that we have, they're both Harvard Medical School graduates. Right. You know, like there is a lot of science behind this, but it is a lot of risk to take for private investors. And especially we talked about reimbursement and regulatory and then clinical and technology and other risks. Demonstration on the government side that there is interest and need to improve patients' health is an important signal and have it early on is critical. And it helps. We talked about CMS predictability. It helps on the front end of predictability for a small company as well to have that funding. It's so important. You think about the size of the federal government and the size of the federal budget on an annual basis. This is tiny, relatively speaking, right? But the it has outsized impact on innovation, on entrepreneurship, and then eventually on patients. And from my perspective, that's why it's so important. And the reason why it is small, because it's an efficient program. If you don't have SBIR, you either don't have innovation or you need to make sure that The payoff at the end for private investors is such that it makes sense for them. Private investors, private money, they're very logical. They go where the returns are, right? So you either provide returns, which means we are going to have an even more expensive healthcare system, or you share the risks early on. As we uh, close out here, let me back up to your time as a CEO, starting a small company and sort of leading to where you are today. There are a lot of young people who are looking to follow in your footsteps and other people's footsteps to start their own company. You know, young entrepreneurs that that really want to experience this as well. Based on your history, Juliana, what advice would you give that category of young entrepreneur, young people who want to be in this position? How did you succeed and how would you uh, recommend they proceed to succeed? I think entrepreneurship is a wonderful way to go. I think People say, oh, risk and instability and all of that, you know, job security is not there. I would suggest that people think not about whether they are employed, but about employability. That's the advice I was given early on, because the question is, do you have the skills that are in high demand? And if you are in a smaller company, you have an opportunity to try a lot of different things and be involved in a lot of things that you might not necessarily have if you're part of a big organization where you, by design, have to specialize. I think it's good to maybe start your career and spend some time in a bigger company where you're surrounded by people who know what they're doing. But if you feel like Entrepreneurship is not for everyone, I understand. 
But if you feel like you want to do this, I think go and try it because it's better to go and fail and regret it rather right. than your whole life not do it and regret that you haven't yeah. tried. That's great advice. And I know a lot of people listening to this will, will heed that. So congratulations to you to where you've uh, grown so far. We look forward to watching your company continue to grow. I always like to close with a little uh, lightning round uh, of questions, if that's okay, Juliana. And uh, so let's start with this one. Uh, do you have a favorite or most influential book that you've read that you would recommend to others? When I was doing my MBA, I had a very interesting negotiation class with Professor Stuart Diamond that actually did provide impact for years to come. And then he later wrote a book that's called Getting More, How You can negotiate to succeed and work in life. And uh, it gives the key messages that I can really relate to it. If you uh, looking back over the course of history, if you could have dinner with one person, I would say alive today or from the past, either one, who would it be and why? I like female US leaders. So whether it's Kamala Harris, whom I mentioned, or Hillary Clinton, or other really female leaders, I would like that. Both of them would be fascinating conversations. Nancy Pelosi would be another one, right? An incredibly yeah. strong person who's sort of fought her way to the top in politics, right? I'm sure her dinner stories would be fantastic, right? And it doesn't have to be necessarily democratic. It just happened that all these names, yeah. you know, this yeah, one's right. sure that right. so. As we always say in MedTech, we work with all the parties. I always like to ask people this question. We talk about success a lot. We talk about failures a lot. And to me, failure in so many ways is in many ways more important than success, right? Learning from those failures that you've had over the course of your lifetime and all of us have had. But if you look back over your career, what's the most important success that you've had that has kind of defined your career? And then the same question for failure. Is there a failure that you've experienced that really sort of turned you in a different direction? I think those experiences are very important. And if we talk about I'll start with failure, maybe, because I have a lot of failures. And it's so it's hard to choose which one is the most important one. But I think the story of my family and uh, the fact that I have failed to find a treatment for my sister, who passed away several years ago at the mm. age of 33, forever reminds me that some patients just don't have time to wait, yeah. to wait for Washington to figure things out, to wait for insurance companies. This urgency is always there. And that ultimately what they showed me the importance of health and led to my 20 years of career in MedTech. And if we talk about successes, I think I mentioned at the beginning, I went to a diplomatic college in Russia. And that was only possible because there was such a chaotic time in Russia in the 90s. The reason why it's important because it gave me exposure. If you live in the Soviet Union, you cannot travel abroad. There are so very few foreigners as a regular citizen, you could never meet a foreigner. So, and when I got into the diplomatic college, that was a lot of exposure to a lot of people who are very different from different social status, different backgrounds. And uh, that taught me that you can only succeed if you talk to people who are different from you, because yeah. 
where your learning opportunity is. And that's how you can come with the most creative and efficient solutions. That's great. Both the, the failure and the success. The failure has driven you to a great place of success running this company as well, Juliana. And my condolences for the loss of your sister. I know that must have been difficult, but to have the resiliency to get through that and continue to lead a company like you have is, is a great credit to you and probably to your mother as well, right, who uh, gave you that inspiration. So amazing stories. And so thank you for taking time to be with us today. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think we probably, reflecting on your diplomatic experience in school, we probably need to have another one where we just talk about foreign policy, not healthcare policy. That would be interesting as well. So it's fun to have you with us. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. And I really want to say thank you to you, Scott, and to Advomed for being a platform and the whole ecosystem for meta companies of all sizes, big and small, different therapeutic areas, different technologies, to really be that place where we all stand together for the well-being of our patients. Well, I appreciate you saying that. We have a great team here. We love our companies, um, and our job is to make your job easier, and hope we're, hopefully we're doing that for you. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Thanks for joining. Have a great day. For those of you listening, thanks for tuning in. For more episodes, visit advamed.org slash podcast or subscribe to MedTech POV on your favorite streaming platform. Until next time, this is Scott Whitaker. Have a great day.